Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. This is the word of the Lord. So research has discovered that there are some fairly significant psychological benefits to swearing. According to the publication Psychology Today, swearing actually influences pain relief. Maybe you have found that. Infrequent swearers, and it does say infrequent, infrequent swearers can endure greater pain when they cuss through pain. One of the other things is it influences our sense of power and control. It makes us feel like we have more control over a bad situation. Swearing can be a way of achieving nonviolent retribution. If we're in a situation where we're upset with somebody, it's a way to get back at people without causing physical injury. Sometimes it's incorporated in humor. As movies have shown us, people often find swearing absolutely hilarious. It's something to do with our power and, I'm sorry, our peer and social bonding. It signifies comfort with a certain group. Maybe it has something to do with our vulnerability around people. It's a form of self-expression, of course, where it shows an emphasis of something that's very important to us, maybe adding some punch to our speech. And there is some influence in our health. When it's done sparingly, swearing can increase circulation, elevate endorphins, and create a sense of calm. Now, of course, you can accomplish many of these things in countless different ways, but what the heck, right? Let's be real, though. Babies experience relief by doing very natural things in their diapers all the time. At a certain point, however, you don't especially want to hang out with that particular byproduct, and if you can help it, you change it or you move on. The scripture doesn't spend a lot of time condemning swearing, and for a couple of reasons, I'm not going to spend time doing that this morning either. But there is in Scripture some fairly vulgar stories meant to be intentionally humorous or even gross for the purpose of embarrassing the adversaries of God or the adversaries of God's people. If you've spent any time with the story of Elijah, the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament, when he's doing battle with the prophets of Baal, the time is spent with Elijah taunting these other priests when they're... um, Impotent God is failing to show up in any notable ways. And one option that Elijah gives is that maybe Baal is relieving himself, which is what super proper scripture translators put in the Bible in place of a likely more insulting euphemism that are not quite as acceptable in mixed company and or sermons. And still, cursing and swearing can reveal through our words some things that are happening inside of us. What comes out of our mouths function as diagnostics for what's in our hearts, right? So how do our words that we speak reflect and reveal what's inside of us? We're going to take a look and we're going to start with a little nuance. Scripture often draws a line between what is considered cursing and what is considered foul language. And so that's where we'll start. And that leads to our first lesson from this morning's passage. Cursing connects with idolatry and condemnation, even if we don't mean to. 
Cursing connects with idolatry and condemnation, even if we don't mean to. In a literal sense, cursing can mean putting a hex or some sort of spell on someone. I've been down to New Orleans several times, and I've seen a lot of practitioners of voodoo. Some people actually practice that as part of their folk religion, and others do it because it is especially lucrative at certain times of year. And either way, these folks are playing with a dark power that is not of God. We may not think much of it, but it's really nothing to trifle with. These powers have been around for a long time, and they're rarely powers of mercy and grace. The Old Testament really deals with this, especially in contrast to the, the ethic and the, the type of community that God is trying to build of the freed Hebrew people in Deuteronomy chapter 18. It says, when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, be careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. And do not let your people practice fortune-telling or sorcery or allow them to interpret omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth the spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things is an object of horror and disgust to the Lord. It's because the other nations have done these things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you. In essence, God is telling the Hebrew people that he liberated from the powers that were enslaving and abusing them to avoid falling back into the trap of powers that were enslaving and abusing them. Fortune tellers, other practitioners of regional pagan religions, did not represent the God who freed the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And God did not want the people to forget who had truly set them free from slavery, the God who provided for them. It wouldn't be good for them because ultimately these powers will run out of mercy or prove themselves false and powerless, maybe even demonic, and I believe in that enough to know that it's nothing to mess with. In any case, it would end up being unhelpful and potentially dangerous. Parts of those practices involved invoking spirits of the dead, or calling hexes, otherwise known as curses, upon people. And God was moving to establish an ethic where the chosen people would bless and not curse those who were even their enemies. These things would not mingle well together. And along with that usage, cursing in the scriptural context is also seen as condemnation. In James chapter 4, he writes, Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize each other and condemn each other, then you're criticizing and condemning God's law. But you're not a judge who can decide whether the law is right or wrong. Your job is to obey it. God alone who made the law can rightly judge among us. He alone has the power to save or to destroy so what right do you have to condemn your neighbor? If we're condemning someone or even telling something to go to hell, we as Christian people are exercising an authority given to us by God to bind things on earth that will eventually be ratified in eternity. When I pound my thumb with a hammer, I don't really mean that I want that hammer to burn eternally in a lake of fire. Maybe for a moment I do, but it's not our role to condemn people. In the Gospel of John, we read in chapter 8 that Jesus was speaking and a group of religious leaders brought forth a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And they put Jesus into a trap. They imagined that he was going to be trapped by this because they said, based on our law, this woman is going to be stoned to death. But based on the Roman law, we don't have the right to do that. Jesus, what do you say? And so Jesus saw this woman and the religious leaders before him. And what he did was he kind of stooped down and he started etching into the dust, etching into the ground. 
And then he stood up and said, let the one among you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And then he stooped down and started etching in the ground again. And with that, scripture tells us from the oldest to the youngest, people started just dropping their stones and walking away. And eventually Jesus looked up at the woman and said, do none of your accusers remain? She said, not one, sir. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's believed that Jesus was probably writing accusations or maybe even commandments in the dust to remind that crowd gathered in anger that they could very likely find themselves on the receiving end of a death by stoning as well. And he was bringing their need for repentance into their awareness. And without condemning them, he was very clearly correcting them. If we take a minute to let Jesus remind us of some of the junk that goes on in our own lives, we know we don't have room to condemn. And our language will reflect that. That leads to our second lesson. Coarse words reveal places where we've disinvited God. Coarse words reveal places where we've disinvited God. This deals more with what we often call four-letter words. These are the words that you used to weren't able to say on television. This is complicated because many of these words start off with legitimate and common meaning in their origins, but for one reason or another, they've taken on a connotation that is unacceptable in the view of the culture. The words were not, by their very nature, inherently off-limits, but there was something that was off-limits as determined by the context. That can be true even when we use substitute, substitute words, like when we're gosh darning things to heck. You know, if there's something in our heart that is wrong, it's not just the the technicality of the words that are coming out of our hearts. So what do these words say about us? Paul talks about how people of faith who are being made every day more and more imitators of God, there are certain aspects of our lives where we see this happening and ways that we might need to call upon a greater grace. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children, Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. The word we translate here as obscenity is iskrologia. It basically means abusive language. That kind of is the kind of word we speak without thinking about how it affects other people. It's a thoughtless word, and God is not thoughtless. But if we take it a step further to a literal sense, it means language that is apart, and specifically language that is apart from God. So when we use coarse language like this, the quick superficial diagnostic is this. That's a place where we've either not invited God into our lives or a place where maybe we've actively disinvited God from our lives. We're either accidentally leaving God out of that thing or subject, or we're willfully hoping God steers clear of that quadrant in our lives. I can't tell you for certain that that's the case in your life, but next time something like that is coming out of our mouths, we can ask ourselves, is this a situation where I could refer more to the grace of God in my life instead of abusive language? Sometimes we release our frustration in anger instead of in trust. We may have distress and control issues that we need to release. Maybe it's a tantrum. Maybe it's grief. Regardless, it shows that we might need to get God more involved in those places in our lives. It's not about shaming people into not 
cussing. It's about intentionally reflecting on what's going on in our hearts and what our words can convey. So what do we fill our hearts and our mouths with instead? What takes the place of some of the uh, cursing or the abusive language? And that leads to our third lesson. Our holy thoughts, prayers, and praise open up those pockets of separation in our lives. Holy thoughts, prayers, and praise open up those pockets of separation. There are times when coming up with the right words in a given situation can be really difficult. I've seen that very well portrayed by Tom Hanks playing Jimmy Dugan in a league of their own. Let's take a look at that. Maybe you've been there. And Jimmy Dugan was not necessarily seeking the Lord's holiness in that instance from a league of their own, but he was trying to be disciplined, intentional, and thoughtful with his words. And it takes work, sometimes against some fairly deeply ingrained habits in us. And so sometimes instead of focusing on the negative things that we want to avoid, we set our sights on things that we do desire, things that are more beneficial. What can we make our words do instead? We can rejoice. We can use our words to rejoice. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells the church, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do and remember the Lord is coming soon. Paul was telling this to a church that was in some turmoil, largely because there was a, a leadership conflict. And the church was poised, it was in a position where people could pick sides and rip the whole thing apart from the inside. And Paul told them instead to focus on what's worth praising. Focus on what's praiseworthy. In recent months, days, years, I've seen some folks who are courageously battling cancer. It's a nightmare scenario, and even in the best of cases, the prognosis requires some incredible suffering as part of treatment. I get angry at cancer these days. It's not even in my immediate family, but I get cussing angry at cancer these days. And yet, even though there's not a lot to rejoice about. I see families creating hope for their loved ones, despite the circumstances, because hope is a part of healing. It's a part of physical healing, definitely a part of the spiritual and emotional aspect of healing. And we rejoice in those instances, not necessarily because there is something we feel like rejoicing about, because hope is so important. It's the gift given to us by a God who regularly overcomes the impossible. And we rejoice even in that possibility because we need to, because we can. We can use our words to pray. We pray. Paul goes on, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. If you do this, you'll experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And because I've tried to make a quicker connection between the words that I don't need to say, the non-Christ-like words in my life, and trying to turn to prayer more quickly, I've tried to learn how to do some, just as I'm going along, prayers. They don't have to be complex. They don't have to be uh, really flowery. It can just be something simple like, God, I, I am at a loss in this situation. I feel out of control. I don't know what to do. My words are reflecting that. I need you to take control. I need you to take over in this moment because I'm not doing well. And just be able to turn things over in that instance, to be able to let God take that position of power. This all comes when we get to adjust our thoughts and our perspective. Paul continues, dear brothers and sisters, let me say one more thing as I close. 
Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. Things that are pure, lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. When I get upset, or when people get upset around me, I try to help us adjust our perspective. Will the thing that I'm having a meltdown about right now matter in five years? Will it even matter in five minutes? Will the thing that I'm demeaning somebody over impact eternity at all? We get to focus on eternal things, on things of justice and on things of salvation. We get to be passionate about these things. We don't have to major in minors and let little distractions rob us of our fruitfulness and our relationships. We get to let our minds, our hearts, and our mouths be filled with pure things. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is teaching us some things to help our lives turn right side up so that the upside-down things of this world can be more like the kingdom of God. And one of the things that he tells us in the Beatitudes is, blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. When we see God, we experience God's presence in our lives, and when we have God present in our lives, we experience peace. Peaceful hearts produce peaceful words, and that kind of peace is absolutely contagious. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are thankful for your presence in our lives that brings about peace. God, when we consider the words that we speak, help us to not experience shame, just frustration that we're not getting it right. Help us to see the ways that you desire to be more and more a part of our lives, to give us a new start, to give us new hope, to give us greater peace. And Lord, as we experience more of that, let our words reflect more of that so that other people can know that you've got kindness, mercy, and grace to offer, that there is forgiveness, that there is blessing to offer, that there is help to be received. God, we thank you that you allow us to be your representatives, that when we speak, people might hear something of you. Help us to do that with great love because you have loved us so richly first. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.